Okay, we're going to start on our temple vision, part two of four, which may be part two of five. So, I have five pages tonight, so normally I can't do more than two. So, it'll probably, it'll probably mean that we need to extend. But as we look at it, if you follow the, the directions or the challenge that I gave you guys last time, so read chapters 40 through 48. And I would continue doing it, keep going through, keep reading them, keep looking at them. Because as we come, there's a, there's a, people have a lot of ideas about this particular prophecy. And most people will take this particular prophecy about this particular temple, and they'll call it the Messianic Temple. That's the temple during the reign of Christ. When Christ rules and reigns as king, this is a temple he builds. Zechariah talks about it. Zechariah talks about the branch, which is a um, metaphor for Christ. The branch will come, and he will build his temple. Now, the challenge I'm going to have for us as we work our way through this, and we look at the timing of this temple and the description of it, I'm going to say that the New Testament has repurposed temple language. Because when you come to the New Testament... The New Testament says what about the temple of God? So if I was to say Messiah built his temple, is it wrong to think that that's what he accomplished in salvation to bring about the, the bride of Christ, the church, the, the, those who believe and trust in him? They corporately, according to Paul, are the temple of God and individually are the temple of God. So, so those things being true, anytime the New Testament repurposes language, okay, when the New Testament, when the New Testament apostolic authority, that's the disciples who walked with Christ, who were then given the charge or the challenge by God to write the New Testament that we read, when they repurpose something, it's important that we understand it. Now, last time I gave you a history of the temple. You remember, we started with the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, when the glory of God moved into the tabernacle, the glory of God, the kavod, the, the weight of God, was so tangible to the priests that they ran out of the tabernacle. They couldn't be inside it when the Lord was in it. Then you have the temple, right? We know about the story about the temple, Solomon is going to build the temple. When Solomon builds a temple and dedicates a temple, what happens? The same thing. The Shekinah, the glory of God, enters into the temple. And it's so overwhelming. His presence is so overwhelming. It drives the people from the priests from the temple. These are each on the day in which those were dedicated. Now, whenever sacrifice would be brought to the Holy of Holies in either place... It was always received by the glory of God. So the priest, the high priest, had a visual representation of the presence of God. Now when you get to the, about the middle of Ezekiel, you'll remember, well actually you get to the very beginning of Ezekiel. Ezekiel gets his challenge, he gets his call from God, right? Remember, it's a, it's a chapter everybody wants to point to and call UFOs. It's the... It's the chariot uh, of God, the chariot throne of God. And so, but what's happened? 
Ezekiel, who is a priest, has been taken in captivity. He's in Babylon. And the glory of God comes to him. Where is the glory supposed to be? It's supposed to be in the temple. But if you read Ezekiel, you'll discover that the glory has departed. Because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness uh, toward the Lord, his glory has abandoned his temple. And ultimately, the temple is going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, right? The children of Israel go into exile. They come back out of exile. Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back into the land. They rebuild the temple. There's never another example of the glory of God entering the temple until Jesus comes and drives out the money changers. And when he does it, they quote an interesting verse. They quote a verse about the zeal of the Lord driving, cleansing the temple, bringing cleansing to that place. And so Jesus brings that cleansing. But what happens? The people do what? They reject him. And when he leaves the temple, in the beginning, he said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all generations or for all nations, for all people. But when he leaves, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And my argument will be that that temple was desolate until its destruction in 70 AD. Now, when Jesus stood before his disciples, after his resurrection, he breathed on them and he said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, they were endowed with power so that they could be his witnesses, so that they could fulfill their apostolic appointment that God had given them as they went forward into the world to bring the gospel to the world. And that gospel is, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, he goes where? He comes into you. So now the glory of God resides in the heart of a believer. Now, Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel is definitely looking. He's going to be taken by way of vision to a temple, and he's, he's told to describe it. So we're going to look into the text tonight, and we're going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do my best to confuse you. There's going to be a ton of measurements, which should excite everyone, right? And he measured this, and it was this long, and he measured that, and it was this. We're going to do that for like 60 verses. So stand by. I, I know... I know it'll be challenging, but stay with me and stay engaged. And I want you to think with me about what all those numbers are going to have in common. Because I'm going to challenge us that this temple that he is measuring and describing is not something that is intended to be taken, taken literal as a building, but is intended to be real. When I say something is not literal, I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying what's being described is a picture, a type. Let me give you an example. You guys know Passover, right? The Passover, the children of Israel are in Exodus. They're slaves. The, you have the, the Passover that is brought forth as a result of the very last plague, right? The death of the firstborn. Everybody with me? 
Now, when we look at that, the Passover meal, that Passover meal is a type, right? It's a type of who? Christ, right. It's a type of Jesus Christ. Now, is, is Jesus a, an actual lamb? No, but do we understand what it means when the scripture says he's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? That his blood is what causes us to be able to live and not to have to die? When we look at these things, it's a picture. Is it still real? For sure, it's still real. It is a, a metaphor, an allegory, a picture of what's going on. And so I'm going to try to draw our attention to that. So tonight we're going to go all the way through. I don't remember where I stopped. 43, I think. So some of the scripture we're going to be going fast and some of it I'm going to slow down and talk about. Next week, I'm going to talk about some of the interpretive challenges. And then we're going to do the rest of the, the, the last four chapters, the fourth week, unless I don't get done tonight. And then there will be five. And if I don't, don't get done next week, then there will be six. So stand by. Hopefully we can all uh, come together and understand. The temple vision... Ezekiel 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. So, we're not going to go very fast. I have to stop. When we look at this, it is, it, this, is the, this is the statement that Ezekiel is dating this prophecy for a reason. And it's going to matter. You're going to hear this number a lot. 25, 25, 50, 500. You're going to hear multiples of these numbers over and over and over again. And I don't know about you, but whenever that happens to me, like if I'm just reading a normal book, well, let's, let's just go to the Bible. If we're reading the Bible and we read seven over and over again, does it, does it make us aware something's going on? Right? If we, see, if we keep seeing the same number over and over and over again, there's something that, that is being described for us. So the 25th year of the exile relates to Ezekiel's own deportation. This is the day Ezekiel, 25 years to the day, Ezekiel was deported. He was in the refugee camp five years before the glory of the Lord came before him. The number 25 and multiples of this are going to be throughout this vision. And they are going to be points and midpoints to what we will describe as the Jubilee year. The year when debts are forgiven. Every 50 years, right? This was something that the scriptures told us about. Now, according to Israelite tradition, the 50th, every 50th year on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the horn, the Yobel, was to be blown throughout the land, proclaiming Deror. Deror means the release. It proclaimed the release. Release of slaves, release of debt, those things are all said to be done. The reason that's important is because in Isaiah 61.1, when the children of Israel are set free from the exile, the prophet writes, it is your deror, your release. You're being set free. And so 
Isaiah, along with Ezekiel, is going to use language that is applied to the year of Jubilee throughout this set, these prophecies and prophecies that describe the return of the children of Israel to the land. The, the year of Jubilee. Now, there are some mind-blowing ideas about the year of Jubilee. For example, there are scholars who say that Christ was born on the year of Jubilee. Which would be just like God, no? To send Messiah on the year of Jubilee to declare the release of people from their sin. So it's just a lot of interesting pictures. Now, I know a lot of times people, sometimes people get carried away. And we come to the Bible and we're looking for secret codes. I don't know that there's any secret codes in the Bible. But the Bible is written as meditative literature. And meditative literature was to be, uh, um, was set to be challenging. And you could come to it and just... Look at it on the surface. There was a, a group of uh, leaders within the nation of Israel. That's how they came to the scripture. They were called Sadducees. There's another group that tended to get super deep into the scriptures. They were called Pharisees. Meditative literature is designed to challenge our understanding. For us to look for what is the author telling us? Why tell us the 25th year? You could say, well, because it just happens to be a 25th year. That's nice round number. Perfect timing, right? Is he drawing attention to the 25th year? You're midway through the year of Jubilee. The declaration to be coming. Yeah. You know, that, that's Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So we have. Yeah. We celebrated that way anyway, right? And I think uh, part, of the, part of the reasoning behind that as well. So when we look at it, we, we don't want to allow these things to slip. So those are the kind of things we're going to look for. In the measurements. Now, but I better get to verse 2 or we're never going to get done. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. He set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Okay, I only made it to verse 2. So, when the Bible uses language about the high mountains, if you go to Israel, we talked a little bit about this last time. There's not really any high mountains in Israel. High mountain language is language that is talking about or looking forward to the kingdom of God. If you remember, Daniel has a vision. You remember Daniel's vision? In Daniel's vision, all the kingdoms of man, they rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, until a rock <coughs> excuse me, comes from the heavens, not cut out by hands, strikes the statue of the kingdoms of men in the feet, grinds it into powder. What happens to the rock? It grows up into a mountain that does what? Fills the whole earth. So you're going to have this high mountain language used throughout prophecy 
that points to the kingdom of God in which you have this kingdom of the peace of God and the, and the tranquility of the earth and all the nations coming to him. Everybody coming to that place. And this is what he's talking about. Isaiah, again, in Isaiah 2, 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. This is all kingdom language. It's kingdom talk for the kingdom of God coming. And so he's being taken to the kingdom. He's being taken to the mountain, this big city. This is the time of Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the king, ruling and reigning. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So as he comes to this vision, he, he is greeted by this, this person. This being has two roles. Role number one, he is going to be the guide to the temple. He's going to walk Ezekiel through all the temple. He's going to answer questions as they work their way through. He's the guide. But also... He's the surveyor. He's carrying two items. The first device is a, a cord made with flax fibers. It was used to make long measurements. He's also carrying a reed, which was used to make small measurements. So he's going to talk about the design of this temple. And he's going to talk about the things that are measured and they are intentional and they are significant this is not like any of the other temples doesn't look like any of the other temples there's lots of things missing from this temple that were a part of other temples so immediately it should make us to, to come to this and say man there's more going on here than just a vision of a temple in the in the kingdom of messiah there's more happening. There's more going on. What's the purpose? He gives this command. Look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart. Set your heart upon all I will show you. This is how we are always challenged to come to the word of God. The psalmist would declare, Lord, help me, teach me to find great things in your word, Lord. To be willing to turn things over i'll tell you how not to learn anything from the bible read it like you already know it as my biggest problem still today the the hardest books for me to teach are the ones that i know i already know i've already learned everything there is to learn in here and so we it's it's challenging when we come to that, we want to be like this. Have eyes to see, ears to hear, set your heart to know. Lord, we want to understand what it is that you're talking about. We want to be able to see what's going on. So as we go through, I'm going to read this next section probably kind of quick. Uh, it's a lot of measurements, so try to bear with me. But know this, several features of the temple are missing. 
So whenever something's missing, it's important for the student of the Bible to come and say, what's not here? What, what is absent? There's no western gate in this temple. It's going to be filled in with other structures. There are no vertical dimensions. There's no description of the roof. Uh, if you look at the other descriptions of the temple that we look at, the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, filled with the dimensions and the measurements and the building materials and the way things were to look and how things were to be put together and where they were to be set, this vision is focused primarily on the space, not the building. What's in the space? The size of the rooms, the opening of the rooms, this is the things that it's going to be focused on. There's going to be times when you're going to lack total dimension of a wall. It's, it's just not going to be given to us. And so the idea when we look at this, there's nowhere in this section that we're going to read that we have a command to go build. This is Messiah's temple. He builds it. And when we read Revelation 22, it says that when we're with him in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no temple there. There's no temple there. Why is there no temple there? Because the lamb's there and the Lord is there and he's in the midst of his people and he shall be our God and we shall be his people. That was the purpose of the temple, right? Holy space where God could meet with his people. Now Christ having become that, uh, fills that gap for us. So I want you to try to pay attention. I know I'm going to get three verses in and your eyes are going to glass over. But stay with me. I'll get right back to you. I probably won't stop in this part. We'll see. Here we go. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a breadth in the length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. Then he went unto the gateway facing east. Going up its steps, he measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. And the side rooms, <coughs> one reed long, one reed broad. And the space between the side rooms, five cubits. And the threshold of the gate, by the vestibule of the gate to the inner, uh, on the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end, and there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate, and there were three, uh, and the three were of the same size, and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gateway, thirteen cubits, and a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side. And the side rooms were six cubits on either side. And he measured the, the gate and the ceiling of one side room to the ceiling of the other. A breadth of 25 cubits. The openings faced each other. He measured also the vestibule, 60 cubits. And all around the vestibule, the gateway was the court. And from the front of the gate to the front of the inner vestibule, the gate was 50 cubits. And the gateway has windows all around, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms and toward their jams. And likewise, the vestibule had windows all around inside and on the jams were palm trees. 
Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. And the pavement ran along the side of the gates, corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement. And he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, a hundred cubits on the east side and on the north side. And as for the gate that faced towards the north, belonging to the outer court, he measured its length and its breadth. Its side rooms, three on either side, its jams, its vestibule were of the same size as those of the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits, its breadth 25 cubits. So he's going to work his way through and he's going to, dis- he's going to measure each of the three gates. And they're all exactly the same. Right? East, north, south. All those gates are the same measurements. He's going to read all of those measurements. You're going, to, you're going to hear them over and over again. Verse 33, it says it's side rooms, it's jams, a vegetable, same size. Both it and the vegetable had windows all around. It's length 50 cubits, it's breadth 25 cubits. So you keep, he's going to go through those three uh, gates that are open. This is what he has laid out for us. Um, and then he goes on. In verse 35, uh, he says, Then he brought me to the north gate and measured it. It's the same size as the others. And then he goes through those measurements as well. Again, it's length 50 cubits. It's breadth 25 cubits. Talks about the same thing about the windows, the palm trees on either side of the jams and the steps going up. There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side and on the outside as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate were two tables and off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. There were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high on which the instruments were to be laid out with which the burnt offerings and sacrifices were to be slaughtered. So you have the description of the place to which offerings are going to be given. Now you should be asking questions about now. Offerings in the millennial reign of Christ? For what? According to the writer of Hebrews, his offering was once for all. So again, these are the reasons when I come to the text, I say this is not speaking of a literal building and a literal place where sacrifice is happening. If it is, it's not talking about the millennial reign of Christ. There's no need for sacrifice there. There's no need for the sin offering. There's no need for the burnt offering. (laughs) And so as we look at the text now... Well, I'll talk a little bit more about that next week or I'll never get through this. But, but um, we'll bring up some of the arguments for and, and against the concept of the offerings. But I just want you to see the place for the offerings is there. Uh, it goes on in the outs, on the outside of the inner gateway. There are two chambers in the inner court. Uh, one at the side of the north gate facing south, south facing north. And he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. Verse 46. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. They are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi Levi may come near the Lord to minister to him. 
So in this, he's only talking about the family of Zadok. That's the only part of the tribe of Levi that would be able to be a part of the uh, high priest that would come into the presence of God. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple to measure the jams, five cubits on either side. The breadth of the gate, 14 cubits. The sidewalls of the gate, three cubits on either side. <clears throat> the length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the breadth 12. And people would go up to it by 10 steps. There were pillars beside the jams, one on either side. Then he brought me to the nave. He measured the jams. On each side, six cubits was the breadth of the jam. The breadth of the entrance was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. And he measured the length of the nave, forty cubits, and its breadth, twenty cubits. And he went into the inner room and measured the jams of the entrance, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits. The side walls on either side of the entrance, seven and he measured the length of the room, 20 cubits, its breadth, 20 cubits across the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits thick. The breadth of the side chambers, four cubits all around. The side chambers were in three stories, one over another, 30 in each story. There were offsets all around the wall of the temple to serve as supports, for the side chamber so that they should not be supported by the wall of the temple. And it became broader as it wound upward <clears throat> to the side chambers because the temple was enclosed upward all around. Thus the temple had a broad area upward. So, uh, and so one went up from the lowest story to the top story through the middle story. And I saw also the temple had a raised platform all around the foundations of the side chambers measured a full reed of six long cubits, the thickness of the outer wall and the side chambers, five cubits, a free space between the side chambers and the temple and the other chambers was a breadth of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. And the doors to the side chambers open to free space, one door toward the north, another door toward the south, and the breadth of the free space was five cubits all around. The building that was facing the separate yard on the west was 70 cubits broad, and the end of the wall of the building was five cubits thick all around. Its length, 90 cubits. And he measured the temple 100 cubits long, and the yard and the building and its walls 100 cubits long, and the breadth of the, of the east front of the temple uh, of the yard 100 cubits. And he measured the length of the building facing the yard that was at the back, and its galleries 100 cubits. The inside of the nave and the vestibules of the court, the thresholds and the narrow windows of the galleries, all around the three of them, opposite the threshold, were paneled with wood all around, from the floor to the windows. Now the windows were covered. To the space above the door, even to the inner room, and on the outside, and on all the walls all around, inside, outside, was a measured pattern. It was carved of cherubim palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a lion toward the palm tree on the other. <clears throat> they were carved on the whole temple all around from the floor to above the door. Cherubim palm trees were carved. Similarly, the wall of the nave, the doorposts of the nave were squared and in front of the holy place was something, something resembling an altar of wood. Three cubits high, <coughs> two cubits long, two cubits broad. Its corners, its base, its walls were of wood. And he said to me, 
This is the table that is before the Lord. The nave and the holy place uh, each had a double door. The double doors had two leaves apiece, two swinging leaves for each door. And on the doors were carved cherubim and palm trees. So you're going to see these same palm trees, these same uh, design, just like the original temple. The original temple had, had uh, cherubim as well that were a part of the design. It was made of blue, scarlet, and purple thread. And the veil and every door was made of the same material. There's a reason for that. It's because Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. He is the way in. How do you come to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through whom? Jesus Christ. And so originally you had these designs that all pointed to Christ. Now the designs are different. You have a cherubim with just two of the four faces showing. Face of a man, face of a lion, and then palm trees in between each one. Now we pick it up in verse 13. He said to me, the north chambers, the south chambers opposite the yard are holy chambers where priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying there the garments in which they minister, for these are holy, so they can't leave with their clothes. They shall put on the garments, other garments, before they go near for that which is for the people. Now when he had finished measuring the interior of the temple, he led me out by the gate facing the east, measured the temple area all around. He measured the east side with a measuring reed 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. The north side, 500 cubits. The south side, 500 cubits. He turned to the west and measured 500 cubits. He measured it on the four sides, on the wall around it. 500 cubits long, 500 cubits broad to make separation between the holy and the common. Then in, in chapter 43, verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold... The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was just like the vision when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me from out of the temple. And he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold, their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations, and they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now, let them put away their whoring, the dead bodies of their kings, far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel this temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquity, and they shall measure the plan 
And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, its whole design. Make known to them as well all the statutes and the whole design with all its laws. Write it in their sight so they may observe all that its laws and statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. That's going to give us some more measurements. We'll pick up that as we come. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about interpretation. How are we supposed to look at this? How are we supposed to wrestle with some of the ideas? But hopefully you can begin to see there are issues within this temple. Is there, is there a lot of design? For sure. Are there a lot of measurements? Yes. Are they descriptive? They are. But they are not complete. We don't have a complete design like we have in the other ones. There's things that are missing. And so we want to come and say, okay, what are you saying? Now here, you see the glory of God entering into this temple. The Lord declaring he's going to be in the midst of his people. His people, if this Israel that Ezekiel is going to go back to, <clears throat> if they will abhor their sin, turn from their sin, repent, turn toward the Lord, this is their future. Their future is to be in the presence of God. That the Lord will dwell with his people. That the glory will once again be in the middle of the nation. This is the promise to the people. Now there's a lot more stuff going on we're going to meet a prince that we're going to have to wrestle with what to do with him and and how do all these sacrifices come together and what are what is the purpose of all of that and, and why is he telling us all of these things so as we come we want to ask those questions we want to look because here's what i firmly believe there is no chapter in the bible that does not matter it all is intended to give us an understanding of who God is and what God's doing. And the challenge of the student of God is to say, I want to know what you're doing. And next time I'm going to show you some drawings. I know we read through all that and you can't picture. If you're like me, you can't picture it. It's just at somewhere, somewhere it's a bunch of words and cubits. And I don't even know how long a cubit is. And we have all the, so I'm going to bring some artist pictures of what the whole thing looks like next week. And we'll talk about some of the challenges as we look at the interpretation of it. Again, this week, read 40 to 48. I know it's not easy. But as you do, ask the Lord, just like God asked Ezekiel, to give you eyes and ears and a heart that wants to understand what it is God is saying. Because this is Ezekiel's last word. To the refugees. So it has to mean something to them. Right? It can't just be for us. All these thousands of years later. So it had to say something to them. That's who he's writing it to. And then by proxy. It will say something to us as well. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God. We thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you, God, that everything we come to when we come to Scripture is not always 
just simple. Some things are, but not everything is. You challenge us, God, to want to know, to want to know you more fully, to enter into the challenge that you, as you cry out, to, hey, if you say you want to know me, I want to reveal myself to you. Here are the challenges that you can, that you can use to do that. So, Lord, we just pray as we, as we come that you will fill us, God, with a desire to want to come to you, to want to comprehend the things that you're laying out for us, to want to know all these things as you have described them in your word. God, that we might bring honor and glory to you, that we would be students of the word that do not need to be ashamed. Challenge to rightly divide scripture. So God, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to understand that we might glorify you in all we do, that we can know you more as we understand the purpose of the vision of the temple that you gave to Ezekiel. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.